The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Today's episode is all about ethics in the time of COVID-19. And my guest is Peter Mayers, who is the lead moderator at the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership, based in Melbourne, Australia. Cranlana is dedicated to strengthening wise and courageous leadership in all sectors of Australian society. And as alumni of the program, I can definitely vouch for its effectiveness. Completing the Cranlana program helped me to come to a deeper understanding of myself and my own ethics, and ultimately actually led me to establish this podcast as a place to come and unpack some of those sticky ethical issues that come with doing good. Peter has a background in journalism and public policy research and is the author of three books on diverse topics such as Australia's housing crisis, temporary migration issues, and Australia's approach to refugees and asylum seekers. He's also a contributor to Inside Story magazine and an adjunct fellow at the Centre for Urban Transitions at Swinburne University in Melbourne. Before that, he spent 25 years as a broadcaster with the ABC, including time spent as a foreign correspondent. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks, Lee. Thanks very much for inviting me on. So first off, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? It's a really hard idea. I mean, you can think about it in two different ways. You can think about the consequences of your actions, what are the results of what I do in a kind of consequentialist fashion, or you can think about it from your motivations. I want to do the right thing. I want to help other people. Now, you can try to do the right thing or try to help someone else and have it actually, the consequences not be very good. You know, we all know that kind of saying, oh, he had the best intentions, but it didn't quite work out, you know. So I think there's two ways of of thinking about doing good. And I probably mix them up, to be honest. We do all have a concern with the consequences. We want to improve the quality of other people's lives. We want to reduce suffering where we can. Uh, We want to improve well-being. So a concern for others and the well-being of others uh, and that sort of, but I also want to be someone who acts from the right motivation, who's not a selfish, completely self-interested kind of person. So there's the sense of your own moral self and that all goes to doing good then, well, what am I good at? You know, so I'm maybe good at communicating, I'm good at writing, I'm good at facilitating conversations. I'm not going to be much use doing construction projects in uh, a refugee camp in Bangladesh. You know, that's not my skill set. So I shouldn't rush off and try and do that when my, you know, I can maybe do more good using the skills that, that I have in other areas. So how do you think you express your doing good in your day to day life then? I think it goes from the the little things, 
you know, to smile at people, to say a kind word, to moderate your anger when when someone upsets you or or, or whatever. So that kind of self-control, I think that kind of moderation of our emotions, which is not to say that you shut your emotions off, but but you don't just respond in anger or, or whatever. So there's that small, that day-to-day stuff, being kind to one another, first of all, to those people you live with and who are very close to you, but then to the ever-widening circles from there on. And then there's doing good in a bigger sense, doing work that you think is useful and contributes to a better society. There is, And there is the kind of doing good that is, you know, donations if you're reasonably comfortably off or, or volunteering your time, that sort of doing good. So there's different levels of it. There's the everyday human interactions, social interactions, and there's the broader, the role of your work. I mean, I wouldn't want to be doing a job that I didn't think was doing good. I don't want to sound too grand, but contributing to hopefully to a better society. And then uh, there's the personal ways you can contribute, sharing your own wealth or expertise, voluntarily, those sorts of things. Just makes me think, do you think that idea of um, making a choice of how to express good is a, a privileged choice, the ability to make that choice in itself? You know, you, I can't know what's in other people's minds, but my sense is that people want to think of themselves as good people and that everyday morality is part of everyone's lives. It doesn't mean people don't do bad things, right? Let's look at the example of the of the panic buying in the time of COVID-19, right? People clearing the shelves of toilet paper and, and the like. I don't think they're, they're bad people who are doing that sort of thing. I think that as human beings, we're torn between different reactions or different impulses. Our first impulse is to look after ourselves and those immediate close to us, our immediate family. And that's an evolutionary response. It's not good or bad. It doesn't mean we're all selfish. We're not all Hobbesian, to use the the, the, the thinking of Thomas Hobbes, who was a you know, 16th century philosopher who, who basically said humans are animal-like, they just satisfy their desires. I don't think humans are like that. But we do have an evolutionary, I would say, an evolutionary impulse to look after ourselves and look after our loved ones. But equally in the response to COVID-19, we've seen supermarkets move quickly to put limits on how many rolls of toilet paper you can buy. We saw supermarkets move quickly to introduce a, a reserve shopping hour for senior citizens and people with a disability. Now, why would they do that? They would do that because they, they recognise there is a widespread general morality shared by the population at large, by citizens at large, that people should get a, f- a fair go, that people should be able to get their necessities. Now, it may not have been a perfect response, it may not have been an adequate response, but it nevertheless reflected that while we look after ourselves, we also have a concern for others and a concern for the most, most vulnerable in our community. And I think those values are widespread, actually. So I want to talk about ethics in the time of COVID-19 in a pandemic and this notion of all of us being in this together. I read a piece that you wrote for Crikey magazine and you said, the virus makes no distinction between rich or poor between citizen and foreigner, between man and woman. The virus takes no heed of skin colour, educational qualification or postcode. So do you think that the virus truly does equalise us? Well, I guess the point I was making there, of course, the virus affects different people differently. Um, and, And I'm not trying to suggest 
that it doesn't. So people with an underlying health condition, older people are more likely to suffer a more serious form of the illness than children, young people. If you live in a mansion, it's much easier to self-isolate than if you live in an overcrowded dwelling or you're homeless or, or whatever. So I don't want to be misunderstood there. But in the end, and this is drawing actually on Camus' novel, The Plague, which is kind of probably a lot of people borrowing it from the library right now and reading it. But part of what um, the Dr. Ryu, I don't know if I say his name correctly, but he's the main character, the doctor who decides to stay and help people who are suffering and dying. Part of what he says is, well, actually, we all die. We're all subject to this ending of our lives. We're all subject to suffering and it can come from nowhere. You know, this town was going along normally, just like we were all going along normally pre-pandemic. Everything was fine. Our lives were normal. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's this little virus that lays us low, has us locked up in our houses, has us panic buying toilet paper. So in that sense, we are all equal. We will all die and we don't choose the manner of our dying. We don't choose the manner of our birth. In that sense, there is a fundamental equality. And the virus isn't picking out anyone to jump to. It's jumping to whoever is is uh, fails to wash their hands or gets coughed on or whatever it you know may be. I, I, I read something, you know, talking about this idea that the ownership class, so the, the people that have the haves are beginning to have a taste of what life is like for the have-nots. And, you know, we see people that would never have dreamed of having to go and get government welfare benefits, having to line up with people that have been living, you know, their entire lives under a welfare system. Do you think there's an equalisation there and and what kind of impact will that have long-term? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, here in Australia, your listeners in other countries may not know this, but we have a a payment which uh, until recently was called New Start, and now it's called the Job Seeker Payment, and it's basically unemployment benefits. And that that amount of money is not enough to live on in Australia. If you if you're paying rent on that, you probably have are uh, paying seventy five to eighty percent of your income just on on rent. Unlike European countries where unemployment benefits are linked to your previous wage, things like that. Here, it's a very, very basic amount. And there's been a, a debate for years now about increasing that the rate of unemployment benefit. And the government's always said, no, we can't afford it. And we don't want to discourage people from looking for a job by giving them too much money and all these other things. And overnight, overnight, the payment was doubled as a response of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the reason being, of course, now that the distinction between unemployed Australians who were characterised as lazy or as not trying hard enough or as being responsible for their own situation, all of a sudden, ordinary, in quotes, ordinary Australians are in the same situation and we can no longer make those discriminatory comments. I'm hoping that, yes, that that one of, of the positive things that might come out of this would be a broader understanding that misfortune can befall any of us. None of us deserve our luck. Some of us are lucky enough to be born into middle-class families like me, lucky enough to get a good education, lucky enough to be able to buy into the property market when we're in our 20s and watch our our assets gain value from no effort on our part, but simply the changing nature of real estate, all those things. Other people are unlucky. They're born into difficult circumstances and a dysfunctional family, whatever it may be. So none of us choose our luck. None of us deserve our luck. And I'm hoping that, going back to your question about equality, that that sort of levelling is part of, you know, if we can take something positive from the pandemic, that might be part of it. Yeah. So 
I mean, we're seeing changes day by day in how governments respond to COVID-19 across the world. And in here in Australia, we've now had three major government stimulus packages designed to try to, I guess, minimize the current and the coming economic impact of this and the social impact that will follow. What does applying an ethical framework look like when you're in the midst of a pandemic that really does know no boundaries? Yeah, uh, so look, that's a really difficult question because there are lots of different ethical frameworks you can apply. There's no one way of thinking about a problem that is is right. There are different approaches. You know, it partly depends on which framework we take, but I think there are some underlying values or, or universals that we need to see as our bedrock. And the first one is the idea of equality. So I think the first words of, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, rights or Article 1 says, all people are born equal in dignity and rights. And that's something that is presented as a truth. Now, of course, from the moment we're born, or indeed before, from, from the moment of conception, indeed, it's not true that we are equal in terms of our actual opportunities or our actual resources. But the fundamental idea that all human beings are equal in dignity and rights is a is a bedrock. And that means that the decisions we're making at this time of crisis, just as the decisions we make when we're not in crisis, should not be based on discriminating against someone because of uh, their background or their parentage or their class or their visa status or their academic qualifications or, or, or any of those things. In a way, I think what the crisis does is shows that all these forms of discrimination that exist, they're, they're kind of revealed. Yeah. Amplified, yeah amplified and they become more you know we've got used to them in the everyday but in the in the crisis we we suddenly are talking about homeless people partly it's because we're all being told to stay at home we think well what about that person and partly it's because we're concerned at the broader level about the spread of the pandemic and you know um, so there's mixed motives there if you like so I, I think that at the bedrock there's this idea that that i would hold on to anyway of equality because if we give up on that idea, if we say, well, actually, no, it's not, we don't think that's a fundamental truth that all human beings are equal in dignity and rights, some people have, should have more rights than others, then we're very quickly down a slippery slope of saying, you know, one class of people or one race of people have more dignity or more rights than others. Uh, and that's not a path we want to go down. So I think that's the bedrock. And then we can look at how we respond on top of that. So you wrote a piece, and I'll put it in the show notes if anybody wants to check it out, but it looks at the concept of utilitarianism. So for those that don't know, it's a moral philosophy which holds to the idea of the greatest good for the greatest number, perhaps probably made most famous by a previous guest of ours, Peter Singer. And the idea that in a crisis, utilitarianism might be in charge or might be the prevailing approach might be really off-putting to some people because a lot of people have quite a visceral response to this philosophy. But you gave an example of this in the sense that medical staff are having to make these choices based on who to treat with limited resources on who's most likely to survive. How do you think this is playing out kind of day to day here in Australia? Yeah, so luckily in Australia, we haven't reached that point yet where uh, our 
um, intensive care units and emergency departments are overwhelmed by COVID-19 cases. But we know it's happened in Italy and Spain and in the US, it's, it's happening as well. So the situation, so, so the final treatment for COVID-19 is, is to be put on a respirator. And that simply means a machine to help you breathe. And since there's no cure and no treatment for the virus at this stage, it's to help you breathe until your own body can fight off the virus and, and your immune system can build up. So um, if you've got 11 patients struggling to breathe and only 10 respirators, you can't treat everyone. You can't take one person off and on and share it around. You know, this is the terrible decisions that doctors and, and not just doctors, medical staff make in emergency situations, in, in wars and, and so on. Someone gets the ventilator and someone doesn't. And this is, you have to find a basis on which to make those choices. Now, one choice is first come, first served. And that is one way of going, well, it's kind of luck of the draw, if you like. And another option is to say, well, we will treat those people who are most likely to survive. The treatment is not guaranteed in any sense. So if someone is already frail, and if we think about this, there was an interesting article in Inside Story, the magazine I wrote, I write for, a piece by a guy who is an intensive care specialist, a professor, and he basically said, look, in many cases, even if COVID was not in the picture, if you had a, a frail, an elderly person coming in with, you know, severe pneumonia, which is essentially the symptom of, of the virus, then you wouldn't necessarily respirate them anyway, because it's an invasive procedure. It's, it has a low rate of success. You would, of course, observe the family's wishes, but you would quite likely palliate someone in that circumstance rather than use an invasive treatment that had a low chance of success. But as the crisis worsens and, and, and the kind of things we're seeing in Italy and, and, and the US and so on, you can see that you're moving down the scale to people who may have a, a chance of survival, then you're making very tough choices. And that's why it, it is important that the choice is based on the best possible decision you can make about chances of survival to use the resources well and not just on age or just on some other characteristic of a person. So it's not based on the fact that you're the doctor's relative or, or um, some other form of so the fact that someone offers you more money for the, the family, offers you more money for the treatment, all those things of privilege and, and connection and prejudice. They shouldn't be in the picture. I mean, I don't know, and you may know more about whether we have actual developed policies for how medical professionals make these decisions in Australia? You know, is it groups of experts sitting around the room discussing what the plan is for if and when we hit that point? Yes, I think, um, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, so I, I stand to be corrected. But my understanding is that in intensive care unit and in emergency response uh, medicine, these things are talked about. Medical ethicists talk about this, and, and this would be the kind of thing that, that doctors and other medical staff on the front line are prepared for. I mean, there was a very, very powerful interview on ABC Radio National on Friday morning, 3rd of April. It was an excerpt from the background briefing program. It was an interview with a nurse in charge of an ICU unit, intensive care unit in rural Victoria, so a small country town where they can handle three intensive care patients at a time and where if things get bad, they'll be getting 10 a day. And she said, my job as a leader is to manage that. And she was crying as she said this very moving, very powerful bit of audio, very powerful interview about what it really means to be a leader. It means to have to make those decisions, who gets treated and who doesn't. And it's a terrible thing to inflict on anyone. It's terrible that anyone has to make those decisions, but it's the reality 
in this situation, well, it's not yet in Australia, we hope it never gets there, but around the world, we're seeing those sorts of decisions have to be made. That essentially is a utilitarian decision. It's saying, well, we've got X number of resources, how can we best use them to extend people's lives and reduce suffering? Having said that, the other factors I talked about, the, you know, the universality and the equal dignity and rights means those decisions are being made on that basis alone, ideally, on the chances of survival, the best possible medical assessment you can do. And also that the process, and this is asking a huge amount more of ICU staff, but the process is one where if your elderly parent is not able to get treatment because there's not enough respirators, that that's explained. And that you get an honest explanation that that patient, if they're able to receive it, gets an honest explanation. That we're not lying to people, we're not dismissing people and we're providing comfort where we can, support palliation where we can, all those sorts of things. So it's not as if the other ethical considerations fly out the window because we're making a utilitarian decision. They are also there uh, and also apply. To behave with decency, to be the best human beings we can in the circumstances still applies even if we have to be utilitarian. Well, you you wrote, I think, in that same article that ordinarily, outside of the pandemic, our democratic processes help to determine how we allocate resources. And they generally obscure any individual values because they're, they're defined systems and structures. But during a crisis, the ethical considerations are exposed for all to see. And people are looking for them. They're looking for what's happening in those decisions. They're directly affected by them. Their families are affected. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, um, so Peter Singer, your earlier guest on this podcast, Peter Singer, when I think he was about 25, in the early 1970s, wrote an essay called Famine, Affluence and Morality. It's a famous essay. It helped establish his reputation around the world. And at the time, he was writing about the refugees, millions of refugees facing starvation in as a result of the war that created the independent nation of Bangladesh. He was saying this, this suffering and this death doesn't have to happen. It's happening because rich countries like Australia are not doing enough to help. And he made the comparison. He said that uh, the amount of aid that Australia had sent was one twelfth of the amount we were spending on our new opera house, the Sydney Opera House. That's kind of making it stark. And when we think about it, of course, these sorts of choices are the choices we're making all the time. I think I, I did a calculation that you know, the amount we spend on our Olympic team uh, to win gold medals in the search for gold medals at Olympic Games is something like four years worth of the funding we give to the United Nations um, Refugee Agency. We have to decide between are we building more uh, neonatal intensive care units for premature babies, which are very expensive. And of course, someone's child born prematurely, there's huge emotional issues here and we want that child to survive. But if we're putting those medical resources into that, then we're not putting them somewhere else. Perhaps we're not putting them into hip replacements for elderly Australians whose mobility could be fixed and who could live in less pain if they had a hip replacement. Perhaps we're not putting it into primary health or, or, or you know, preventative health, all those. So we make choices all the time. But as you say, generally, these are obscured through the democratic process. But now when governments and public servants have to make these rapid decisions in the full light of, and they're very pointed, it's do the masks go here or there? Do they go to the Sydney hospital or to the 
the Dubbo Hospital, whatever, you know, the regional centre, whatever it may be. So the calculations and, and utilitarianism is a kind of calculation of, of where the most can be done to reduce suffering or where the most happiness can be created. Those calculations are suddenly kind of rawly and quite harshly revealed to us. Yeah, and something I've kind of been mulling over for the past few days, and I'm, I'm not quite sure where I've landed on it, is how this translates to the global space, particularly within that framework of utilitarianism. You know, that Peter Singer would argue that doing the greatest good is not necessarily here in Australia. It's, you know, when it, when it comes to donating money, it's overseas where the greatest need is, the greatest number of people can be impacted. And what I'm interested in is how it seems that during this pandemic, and indeed in, in most crises, and we saw that with the bushfires as well, the natural inclination is for structures, so organisations and institutions, but also individuals to turn inward to their own needs. And as an individual, making sure that your, your basic needs, shelter, food and water and so on, are, are met. And then in many cases, it's only when your own needs have been met that you can begin to turn outward to those concentric circles of community. So your family and friends, your local community, then your state, your nation. It makes me wonder what this means for countries in, in what we call the global south, developing countries who we know are going to be hit extremely hard by COVID-19 who, you know, I read today that Central African Republic has three ICU beds in the whole country. And that these countries whose traditional means of support in an emergency or a crisis are turning inward to deal with their own crisis. What do you think it means looking forward in terms of how we support the vulnerable in our global world? Yeah, I, look, I think this is a really hard question and I don't know if I have anything like an adequate answer. I mean, I've been looking at the stories out of Indonesia, for example, um, one of our nearest neighbours here in Australia, Jakarta in particular, a huge city, people living very close together, many people living in makeshift shelters where the funeral rites were cried under Islam, meaning that you, you wash the body, you bury the next day, all sorts of issues are, are, that will make it very hard to stop the rapid transmission of of COVID-19. Um, and yes, you know, our focus here in Australia is on our own ICU units, our own intensive care beds, our own nurses and, and, and all the rest of it, whether we can get more masks um, uh, from overseas. And at the micro level too, back to the, the hoarding of or the, the, the panic buying in, in supermarkets, that is, a, you know, I've got to make sure I'm you know, stocking up for my own family first before I think about others. But but as I say, the other motivation is all, has been very present too. You know, people walking around the streets, letterboxing their neighbours, saying, call me if you need me to do some shopping. People putting out their extra rolls of toilet paper on the street for any passerby who, who couldn't, couldn't get me at the shop, that sort of thing. Another ethic that is returning to the surface here is the ethic of what I call a communitarian ethic. So the idea that actually I need to stay at home, not just to protect myself, but I need to stay at home as much as possible in order to do my bit to help prevent the spread of this virus or to, as we know now, sort of bend the curve, flatten the curve so that it doesn't overwhelm our health system. And I think it's understandable that we are preoccupied with the immediate and the local at the moment. 
because that's what's in front of us and because we're stuck in our homes and, and all the rest of it. Um, we're concerned of us with elderly parents are worried about them or all those things. But uh, you would hope that the lesson that comes out of this is that what the world needs in order to be better prepared for this sort of event is much greater global cooperation and coordination not a retreat into isolationism. So I was part of a, a, an online discussion uh, earlier this week uh, in which the question was asked, is this crisis uh, World War I or World War II? So after World War I, we know what happened. The stage was set for a new round of fighting because there was no building of international institutions and no mechanisms for handling conflict and so on. After World War II, we did set up, whatever their faults, we set up a whole lot of global institutions, the United Nations, Bretton Woods Agreement, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. I'm, I'm not saying those were perfect because we all know they've been full of problems, but at least the idea was that we will be better, we will manage the world better if, if we see ourselves as a global community, if we have international standards and norms and forms of cooperation and we've been in, in recent years seeing movements in both directions. On the one hand, you've got the kind of uh, isolationism of Trump and the trade war between US and China and those sorts of things. On the other, you've had the global compact on migration, the global compact on refugees, which are attempts to bring some international rules to bear on the forced displacement of people around the world. So we always see this tendency between a, what you might call a realpolitik approach, which is to say, We'll look after our own national interests. There are no friends in international relations. There are only strategic alliances, all that sort of thing, versus the idea of an international order of accepted norms and standards. And we've never had that fully. It's always, there's always been a superpower dominating things as well, but that doesn't diminish the aspiration um, that we should move towards that. I think, you know, for me, what the difference at this time is, is that, Traditionally, you know, when there's an emergency, and for example, I work in the Pacific on disaster preparedness and child protection in emergencies. And a lot of my work is around preparing government social workers on how to deal with child protection through an emergency. And the contrast between this emergency that we're in and that is that usually there's someone to help that's not affected by the emergency. And what's unprecedented here is that we're, us in the development sector are, are looking at this looming international humanitarian crisis that is not restricted to the countries that we would normally expect it to be, but the sources of support or help are also unable to respond. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, I mean, unprecedented, at least in my lifetime, where you have something that affects everyone. I mean, it's we had the GFC, of course, and that had big repercussions, but it was an economic crisis, not a health crisis. We had SARS, and that was geographically limited. We had um, the Ebola outbreaks, and they were geographically limited, and not enough help was offered, obviously, at that point. We were, I think those countries that could help are very slow to respond. We've had natural disasters, but they haven't been global. But this should be a preparation for us because this is both a, a health and an economic a crisis. It should give us pause to think about climate change and, and the global implications of climate change, which are beginning to affect every nation and every group of people around the world. So, I mean, you're right, there's no, there's no nation standing back that can fly in with offers of aid. I mean, it's interesting that China was helping out Italy with necessary supplies after China 
sort of got a lid on its initial problems. I don't know how how we get through this. I don't think anyone does at this point. So I want to go back to you. Who is or has been your greatest influence in, in doing good and why? You know, I think it's often your parents. I think the idea that you should critically question the way things are and whether they have to be that way is something that I think both my parents instilled in me, the idea that that you would ask well, why are we doing it this way and does it have to be that way? So that kind of critical approach. I've been influenced myself by Cranlana, which I've been involved with for about 10 years since I was a participant in a Cranlana colloquium that had a that kind of gave me a language, I suppose, to talk about these issues that I had been kind of inchoate before and not, not expressed. And, you know, I would say, this might sound a bit odd, and... Um, I'm inspired by the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which I worked for for 25 years, and the idea of public broadcasting, the idea of public broadcasting that it's a kind of enlightenment idea that if you provide people with the information they need, the resources they need to analyse that information, then they will reach better decisions and to trust in people's capacity to work together to make good decisions is something that I think underpins the ethos of of public broadcasting. And so I, th- I think that ethos sits there for me in, in the background to, to give people the skills, to give people the information, to, to enable them to make good decisions and to work together on those decisions, to understand their social connectedness, uh, that we are part of something larger, that you know, we're not just all isolated individuals pursuing our own, our own happiness, but actually our individual happiness is always a social product, always something that we create together and we can do it better or worse. The next question is one that I ask everybody and it's, it's taken a bit of a different turn during this time, but it's, it's what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. And you're probably familiar with that question. <laughs> Yes. I am. Well, for me, without a doubt, it's climate change. And it's a huge task. And the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, is an, is an opportunity for us to learn the international skills we need, to learn to listen to evidence and expert advice and respond to it that we need if we are going to manage the effects of climate change. And we're failing. We are badly failing at the moment to manage them. You know, we are we are putting the world at massive risk because we have very short amount of time left to bring global emissions down. It's like the image that works for me is that of a bucket that's filling up with water and we're really near the top already. And these emissions hang around in the atmosphere an awful long time. So once we're over the top, there's no going back. We already see what's happening in the Great Barrier Reef and that to me is, is the greatest challenge because it's, it's so hard to coordinate internationally, all the rest of it, all the self-interest that comes into it, that's up there. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? (laughs) I can think of one. (laughs) Well, um, wash your hands, obviously. Stay home, wash your hands. (laughs) Stay home, wash your hands. But I think that, you know, if we could take something, so I have personally been trying to stop flying. I fly for work, but I've been avoiding other forms of flying where I can, I would think that a return to the local 
which might be something we could learn from this pandemic is a good thing, how much there is in our local community to see and enjoy and do and connect with. Um, you know, we'll be also in overjoyed once we can get out of our houses again right. and see, um, <laughs> see our friends and neighbours that maybe rejoice in that for a while rather than feeling like we have to jet off somewhere to see something new and yes. exotic. Yep, absolutely. So tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now. I'd say you, Lee, for a start. <laughs> that's that's probably not an allowable no, response. <laughs> um, um, I'm on the research committee for an organisation called the Centre for Policy Development. And the Centre for Policy Development has been in, doing a lot of work on climate change and corporate risk. So working with uh, large corporates. And now, some people's response to climate change is to say we've got to get rid of capitalism. And I understand where they're coming from, but capitalism's not going anywhere soon. Well, it's taken right. a hit at the moment <laughs> as we see a return to big government. But, you know, to get major corporations thinking about their business in terms of climate change, I think, is a really important step. And that's what Set of Policy Development has been doing. It's also been working on a Asia Dialogue for on forced migration. So trying to get coordination and cooperation between countries in the Asia-Pacific region around forced migration and human displacement. And, and though that work, and I play a you know, very minor role, and so I'm not trying to praise myself here. That work, which is led by the CEO, Travis McLeod, I think is, is very impressive work. I'm very impressed with, with what they're doing. And a final couple of questions for you. Where is your favourite place on earth? At the moment, I would say Torquay Point, which is just down the road from where I am now, which is a surf break. And uh, I, have a, I share one thing with Peter Singer. I took up surfing in my 50s. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, it is a form of saltwater therapy, I call it. And so if I can be, be there on a good day and have a surf, that's my favourite place to be. And the next place would be my veggie patch. Beautiful. <laughs> I guess <laughs> both, both are places where I can uh, might let my head yeah, rest a bit. Yeah, and we need that, I think, right now. What book are you reading or podcast are you listening to? So the book I've just read is a book called Solved by um, a, a Melbourne uh, writer and public servant called Andrew Ware. And it's taking examples from all around the world of ways different countries have tackled really tough problems. So it looks at, for example, the way Denmark has been reducing emissions. It looks at the way England has been uh, reducing public violence, you know, violence on the streets, like alcohol fuel violence and stuff like that. It looks at uh, Singapore's education system. It has a whole lot Iceland's Iceland's work, which I knew nothing about, on gender equality. Really fascinating stuff. So it's a really nice book and it's a good one to read at the moment if you're stuck at home and the world seems a bit bleak because it shows human ingenuity, evidence-based policy and cooperation can help us to get ahead, not solve problems. I think solve's too big a word, but certainly do a much better job. I'm going to add that to my pile. It sounds fascinating. And do you listen to podcasts? I do. Um, my favourite ABC podcast is The Philosopher's Zone. The Philosopher's Zone, if people know that one. I like The Minefield as well on ABC Radio National. I actually am a traditional radio listener, as in I get up and listen to the radio on my little <laughs> radio in my pocket and so I listen to Radio National Breakfast every morning and I have a favourite German podcast which is also a philosophical podcast called Das Philosophische Radio. If you speak German I'd recommend that. Okay well, I'm going to add all that to the show notes. Thank you so much for your time Peter. I know it's a very busy time for you and, and everybody and we've all got really competing 
stresses going on. So I really appreciate you making the time to come and talk to me today. And yeah, I hope that we all get through this crisis and um, keep supporting one another. Yeah, thank you, Lee. Stay well and to all your listeners as well. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.